This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, Millions of young people in the United States now see themselves as agents of transformational change, and one of the best places to begin is by studying Malcolm X. We'll talk with an activist student of Malcolm's life and work, and white nationalist militias seem to feel right at home in western North Carolina. A young activist from Gastonia says the whole country needs to undergo a process of de-white supremification. But first, the world is reeling from the double whammy of COVID-19 pandemic and a global economic depression. The crisis has created an historic opportunity for the super-rich to massively restructure capitalist economies in ways that spell disaster for poor and working people. We spoke with Anthony Montero, a Du Boisian scholar and activist with the Philadelphia Saturday Free School. We had the last so-called debate between Trump and Biden. And if you had anything to take away from that, you were doing a lot of hard work. There was nothing to it. So therefore, it forces us to consider the context in which this election and most political events in the United States in particular are taking place. And you are absolutely right. When you target the major thing going on in capitalism, world capitalism at this time, and it is what is called the fourth industrial revolution, where, for example, in the United States, production will go from what we normally think of as manufacturing industrial processes, even in labor contexts that are not industrial, but the processes are modeled upon the manufacturing and industrial way of production. However, the fourth industrial revolution is to take production from that model to a digital model where in the United States over half of the current workforce would be made redundant where unemployment or part-time employment and semi-employment will define what work means. This will mean the impoverishment and immiseration of the working class and lower middle classes, a greater part of the petty bourgeoisie, that is small business people, will be pushed into the working class and into the poor. On the other side, we're looking at these high tech corporations concentrated in Silicon Valley, financed in large part from Wall Street, who are on the cusp of making trillions, if not 
tens or hundreds of trillions of dollars in profit as they dispense with labor. That is the context. This election makes sense only if we look at it from the stakes that the working class have in this moment. If capitalism is able to consolidate around high-tech digital production processes, labor might lose for a whole century, set back for an entire century. So yeah, I would agree with you. We're looking at something unforeseen or unseen in hundreds of years. Yes, of course, we would see a further spread of the gig economy, but much more, a tipping of the scales, so to speak, so that the gig becomes the general, the rule in that's terms right. of labor, a labor in which there are no rules. And that's what, you know, Klaus Schwab, if people don't know that name, Klaus Schwab was the founder almost 50 years ago of the World Economic Forum, which we associate with the annual meetings at Davos, Switzerland. Gatherings of presidents and rulers of countries, aristocrats and big capitalists and leading intellectuals in the capitalist world. He said recently that the COVID-19 crisis must not be, and these are his words, wasted. We must use this crisis to move quickly, to consolidate the forces connected to this new digital economy, this fourth industrial revolution, to move on the working class, to reduce all work to a form of a gig economy, which would mean the immiseration of workers and the enrichment at levels unimaginable of the Twitters, of the Facebooks, of the Microsofts, of the various tech companies associated with artificial intelligence, with robotics, where work will take place from home if you have a job, where people will be forced to socially distance which is a way of saying we're going to break up unions because you can't meet because of the COVID virus. So Klaus Schwab, in talking about this is a crisis that can't be wasted, is saying that now we must move to consolidate the power of the richest corporations in the world over labor and finally over Africa, especially the southern part of Africa, the mineral treasure house of the world, and in particular over the resources of the eastern Congo. And also, we should add, over the resources of countries in Latin America, like Bolivia, which has yes. vast reserves of lithium. But these corporations that are benefiting from the great consolidation and the acceleration that the COVID-induced economic crisis has caused, these corporations are the most closely associated with the Democratic Party. We're talking about Silicon Valley. We're talking about the section of the oligarchs that are associated with high tech. Yes, and these are the hegemons of the oligarchy. We're talking about the Democratic Party 
And this is the great irony, as not the party of labor and black people, if it ever was that in essence. But now, unapologetically, the party of Silicon Valley and Wall Street, of high finance and high tech, the party associated with policies, with class forces whose interest is in the complete destruction of the capacity of working people to stand up for their rights, to organize unions, to organize resistance. The Democratic Party is that party. It is also the party of the military and of the national security intelligentsia. Now, if that is the future we want or you want, I would say you are compelled to vote for Joe Biden. And all of this will take place under the guise of fighting the COVID-19 virus, fighting white supremacy, and giving a more humanistic face. Having said that, I have to say I'm not voting for either of them. And I'm very upset that in Pennsylvania, the Green Party has been taken off the ballot. We need a third party. We need an option of the Trump Republican Party with its appeal to nativism and white supremacy is not the alternative that the working class needs to fight against the forces that constitute the Democratic Party at this time. Well, where does this leave all these black folks? The entire black misleadership class is ensconced in the Democratic Party. But ever since the 2008 election, they haven't even called for a Marshall Plan for Black America. And now the capitalists are getting an opportunity to implement a great plan for their consolidation of power and demiseration of working people and especially Black folks. Yeah, well, Glenn, you know, the Black misleadership class for the last at least 30 years have been toothless. And they're misleaders because they're not leaders at all. The uh, Black community is leaderless for the most part. So it leaves them either openly collaborating with the enemies of Black people, objectively the enemies of Black people, or changing course and uniting with the suffering of the masses of Black people. This is a critical time. It is a turning point in the Black freedom struggle, but it's also a turning point in the nation. And it really is a turning point. It's an existential moment. Yes, and we shouldn't be waiting for predominantly a white grouplets like the Green Party to somehow big themselves up. This is a time for Black people to organize politically. And that's a great task, Glenn. After, you know, I said 30 years, but it's been, it's been more than 30 years, but certainly since Bill Clinton's presidency, the masses of people have been terribly sold out. How do we get out of this? What is to be done is the big question. I would not be so arrogant as to suggest right now the path forward. Clearly, we have to break with both parties of the duopoly. We have to. 
We cannot go through another election cycle like this one. Hopefully, we won't have to. Hopefully, Black folk, along with other people, will be able to form a third party, a party of the people, with a anti-oligarch, anti-imperialist stance. But we cannot go through more of this. If so, I mean, as a people, we will effectively have been eliminated from history as a force in history. Well, clearly, the contradictions are much more apparent because of this crisis than yes. they were this time last year. Everybody knows that not only do we not have a health care infrastructure, but the entire infrastructure of the United States has been deteriorating. And next year, China will have the only economy in the world that is not in recession. That's right. And, you know, the other thing that this pandemic has pointed out, that most Americans have some kind of pre-existing condition, except for real small children. I mean, most Americans are sick because we do not have a health care system, a system that cares for the people of this country. But that goes for most of the capitalist countries, like the United States. Since 2008 and probably before, the neoliberal economic policies have meant a brutal austerity for the masses of people. And this means, as you point out, in education, in health care, in every aspect of civil society where government is supposed to do something for the people, government has failed. Government has not failed the oligarchs, the war makers, and those who are set to make tens of trillions of dollars off of this crisis. In terms of austerity, that's a term that's not really in common usage in the United States and certainly not widely understood. What austerity really means is a global race to the bottom, engineered yes. and profited from by the oligarchy. Absolutely. And this fourth industrial revolution will accelerate that. The only countries that will not be swept into it are countries like China, perhaps Russia, perhaps Iran in this new global alliance who reject those policies of immiseration of the people in the interest of super profits for the oligarchs. Now, in this era, as we've just discussed, it will be the Silicon Valley oligarchs who will be in the lead of the yes. great acceleration and consolidation. The very corporations that are most deeply associated with the Democratic Party. And I think we got a taste of that in the primaries where an oligarch, one of the top 12, I believe, in the country, Michael Bloomberg, jumped into the race and financially took over the finances of the Democratic National Committee, signaling that the oligarchs will be playing a much more hands-on role in that party. Yeah. And of course, you know, Michael Bloomberg has said that he is putting $100 million into the Democratic Party race in Florida. Oh, yeah. They're not even ashamed of it. Spending billions of dollars on one race and the money that they're pumping in to the South Carolina race. The Democratic Party 
is owned by Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Let's face it. And they are saying to us, bow down and accept it because the alternative is worse than we are. You know, one of the things I wanted to say is that people are not unaware of what is going on and are not unaware of the fear, the anxieties, the the future or the lack of a future. That's what I want to say. And we see high levels of trauma and anxiety among the working class and black people in particular without leadership, without anyone saying that we will stand up for black people, for the working class. People see no future. It is a real huge crisis at every level of society, not just the economic or societal level, but at the level of individuals in their day-to-day lives. How are they going to educate their children? How are they going to feed their children? Where will they live? Will they ever work again? Will their children work? These are the big questions that are confronting us in this crisis, again, which is an existential crisis of the system itself. And neither of the corporate parties provide any hope or solutions. None at all. None at all. That was Du Boisian scholar Anthony Montero speaking from Philadelphia. The Black radical tradition has always emphasized that Black American liberation is part of a global struggle. Desmond Fonseca is a doctoral student of history at the University of California at Los Angeles, who has lately been immersing himself in the study of Malcolm X. Fonseca is greatly impressed with Malcolm's writings, speeches, and organizing work, especially in his latter years, when Malcolm was an outspoken advocate of Black American internationalism. One speech that I really look to often when it comes to me thinking about Malcolm and me thinking about our current day is it's actually not the ballad of the bullet, which I think a lot of people would immediately go to when we have this conversation about ballots and about voting, about voting registration. But it's actually a speech he delivered about a week before he was assassinated in Detroit, which is called Educate Our People in the Science of Politics. I think it's a very important speech. I think we can learn a lot just from this speech. You know, many Malcolm speeches, we shouldn't isolate ourselves to the two that I think get regurgitated the most, which is the Battle of the Bullet, which is message to the grassroots, but um, really look towards the end of his life, you know, after he had founded his own organization, after he had traveled internationally. But there's this one line in Educate Our People in the Science of Politics, where he's talking about the internal aim of his new organization, the uh, Organization of Afro-American Unity, named and modeled after the Organization of African Unity, which is that our internal aim is to become immediately involved in a mass voter registration drive. But we don't believe in voter registration without voter education. We believe that our people should be educated in the science of politics so that they will know what a vote is for and what a vote is supposed to produce, and also how to utilize this united voting power so that you can control the politics of your own community and the politicians that represent that community. Yes, it seems that some Black folks have a fetish about voting, that the act itself is somehow liberatory and an obligation. 
Precisely. You know, Malcolm would never say, I mean, if you go back to the ballot of the bullet, you know, when he's comparing ballots to bullets, he says that the ballot itself can be thought of as a bullet. Um, there's two ways of looking at that speech. Um, there's the ballot versus the bullet, and there's the ballot as the bullet, that the ballot itself is a weapon, but you don't just shoot at any random old target. You pick your target, you pick when to shoot, you pick when not to shoot. And so, I mean, the, the point of political education becomes incredibly important to kind of counter this idea of the fetish of the black vote. And it's not that we don't have political education right now. It's that our political education comes from the press, the corporate press, you know, CNN, MSNBC, as well as corporations themselves or celebrities who themselves either don't have a political education or have a political education, which is somehow just apolitical. You know, it's, it's kind of confusing. I mean, to me, it's just confusing, you know, the insistence on voting. Well, we know very clearly that the corporations want you to vote against Donald Trump and for Joe Biden, but they don't even tell you that much. There's kind of just this assumption which makes no sense. You're currently studying a book written by Ira Dworkin that emphasizes the internationalism of Malcolm's politics, especially in his last years of life. Yes, yes. In a specific chapter in the Ira Dworkin book called Chicken's Home to Roost, which is about Malcolm's internationalism in the Congo. And the Congo right now is, is less, is perhaps less explicitly relevant to our current political situation in the United States. But what it represents in the 60s and what Africa represents today is, is largely the same. I think when you look at the two presidential candidates, you see two people whose foreign policy views, whose views on Africa are either the same or non-existent and what gets talked about in the media. You know, both Biden, both Trump are anti-China, anti-Venezuela and kind of boring, bland, pro-American, anti-socialist ways that the United States has adopted for the past century, the past two centuries. I think studying Malcolm within this internationalist and pan-Africanist framework is, is really important because there seems to be this trend today to isolate Malcolm from his internationalist views when in reality, you know, his political understanding, his political teachings um, always linked the role of black people in America to the role of black people in Africa and all over the world. And when Malcolm said Afro-American and really kind of pushed forth Afro-American as the terminology to use for black people in America, he really meant Africans in America, and he meant Africans in all of America, not just the United States of America. And when he talked about specifically the Congo in the mid-1960s, he did it in a way that wasn't kind of uh, this, this moralistic plea for Africans in America to relate to and fight for their family, their brethren on the continent. It was really a political point he made to stress the fact that the way that the press talks about Africans in America, you know, Black people in America, rioting and looting in the United States, treating them as subhuman, um, was similar to the ways in which that, or was dissimilar to the ways in which they talked about violence on the continent, right? The press in the 1960s and today, right, in 2020, constantly disparages the violence of, you know, black hoodlums and black thugs. But what it doesn't do is disparages the violence that the United States military, its allies, and its contractors conduct against black people innocent, defenseless Black people in other parts of the country. And the very specific point he made in the 1960s were American-contracted, quote-unquote, anti-Castro-Cuban pilots and American mercenaries dropping bombs on Congolese villages and killing African men, women, and children searching for, you know, quote-unquote, Congolese rebels and, and terrorists. And in the middle of doing all that, slaughtering many freedom fighters as well. In terms of Congo's relevance today, Malcolm was speaking of the years in which the United States, along with European powers, was trying to thwart 
Congo's independence, its real independence. Today, there's a great deal more violence in Congo. Six million Congolese have died over the past 20 years or so, and the United States is neck deep in that blood. Precisely, precisely. And so when they talk about violence, when they talk about the violence that takes place in the United States of America, and also when they talk about violence, maybe when they're talking about violence in anti-government protests in Venezuela, they're talking about anti-government protests in Hong Kong. These are very specific political ploys and attempts to redirect the attention of Americans, of Black Americans, to undesirable states. So when Malcolm's talking about the insistence that the U.S. press has talking about violence in America, or even, you know, the violence of these unsavory regimes to their own political aims and ideologies, specifically Patrice Lumumba in Congo, who the United States aided in overthrowing in 1961 under the charges that, you know, this was a a new Castro or a Soviet puppet, in really intense language, they're doing this in the 1960s, compared to today when Congo is home to one of the worst, if not the worst, refugee crises in the world, you know, and the United States will constantly talk about the refugee crisis coming out of Venezuela. We'll constantly talk about the refugee crisis coming out of Syria, but you'll never hear anything when it comes to refugee crises and displacement and rebel violence in Africa today, because the regimes that exist in the United States today are neo-colonial regimes, um, are regimes that Malcolm would say are led by Uncle Tom. In the case of the Congo, Malcolm called Moy Shambe, who was the successor of Patrice Lumumba and a close ally to the United States, as well as Shambe's successor, Joseph Mobutu, called them Uncle Tom's. Um, and that's really what neocolonialism is, if you think about it, in Malcolm's rhetoric and in his parlance. Neocolonialism is just the rule of Uncle Tom's. And I think we can also extrapolate that analysis, maybe to a different degree, not necessarily a lesser degree, to the state of our Black politicians the Black media, the Black press in the United States today compared to where they were in Malcolm's time. And in Malcolm's time, with reference to Uncle Tom's as such, the established Black political organizations began to make statements about the plight of people in the Congo following Malcolm's agitation on the Congo. Yes, exactly. And, you know, when the Congo crisis began, it was really... Malcolm, and even still the Nation of Islam, which was really intent on bringing us to the fore of the Black American political imagination. And so at this time, we also get, you know, newspapers like The Liberator. We get the Black Panther Party newspaper a couple of years later. And we get the Black World, formerly known as the Negro Digest, and all these different, you know, Black radical publications, which would talk, you know, every week uh, or every day or every month about how the political events happening in Africa had direct relation to the political events in the United States. And Malcolm himself said that you can't understand Mississippi if you don't understand what's going on in the Congo. A week before he died, he said that the struggle in South Africa, the struggle in Angola, and the struggle in Alabama is all one struggle. So it's important to note that distinction to where we currently are today if we think that we made you know, progress politically. I don't understand how that can be the case when we don't have really any Black publications, any Black independent press, aside from Black Agenda Report, that have a wide circulation, have a wide impact. And in the 60s, you know, Malcolm's time, it was also a struggle, you know, while we had Black World and we had The Liberator, we also had, you know, Carl Rowan, who Malcolm was constantly critical of and Paul Robinson was constantly critical of in his role trying to make Black Americans more sympathetic to U.S. foreign policy aims. So that's not to say that it was everything was perfect um, in the 60s and Malcolm's time, it certainly wasn't. In many ways, it laid the groundwork for the current neocolonial or 
Uncle Tom regime that we have today. Yes, at least there was a conversation about world affairs and where Black people fit into those affairs back in the 60s, and it continued deep into the 70s. But here we have the biggest genocide since World War II in the Congo, with the U.S. complicit in that genocide, and nobody in the Congressional Black Caucus has a word to say about it. No, not a word at all. And that's a far cry removed from the Congressional Black Caucus from 40 years ago when you had people like Charles Biggs advocating against the United States' support of apartheid in South Africa or Portuguese colonialism in Angola and Mozambique. And you also had John Conyers, who was a staunch defender of the Cuban Revolution and what it meant for third world people and black people today. I mean, I couldn't tell you anything that the CBC stands for except for, you know, the rule and the hegemony of the Democratic Party. Just tell black people to vote Democrat for no particular reason or because they're not Republicans. And the silence on the Congo is absurd. So not just on internationalism, but the totality of his life and work. Where does Malcolm stand in the pantheon of black political activism and advocacy? How I see it is, you know, Malcolm represented this breakthrough What I've recently been thinking about is kind of like a second nadir of Black political thought, which emerged after the Second World War, the height of McCarthyism and anti-communism, which exiled the repressed leaders such as Claudia Jones, W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson. And Malcolm kind of represents a kind of breakthrough or like a reemergence of Black radicalism through his work, you know, originally in the Nation of Islam through his prison writing, his prison advocacy, his anti-carceral advocacy, and his insistence on black militancy, which had been tampered by the United States government, revoking Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois' right to travel, deporting Claudia Jones. There's two angles to this, right? He's kind of reflective of a rising upsurge of local and grassroots black militancy. But, you know, and, and while he was reflective of that, and I think his rise to like national prominence is really a reflection of the black masses' discontent with not only being domesticated and colonized within the United States of America, but also the United States of America's actions across the world. But he also shaped what was next to come. This kind of a second stage, you know. I think there's this misconception that after Malcolm was essentially kicked out of the Nation of Islam and traveled to Africa, although his trip mostly gets focused, it, the trip mostly becomes about Mecca and in the press and in the academic press that follows. There's this notion that you know, 1964, 1965, he gets more conservative almost, and that he gets his, his fire is kind of tampered down and that he becomes almost multiracial, almost a, an integrationist. So the, the idea is that he becomes sort of more like Martin Luther King in their interpretation of what Martin Luther King actually is, you know, the liberal imagination of what Martin Luther King actually was. But in the actuality, you know, I think the reverse is true. You know, Malcolm, people like Malcolm, the masses like Malcolm, influenced Martin to take a more militant stance, influenced Martin to question the effectiveness of nonviolence, made Martin and people like Martin question the idea that most or even a sizable amount of white Americans could be converted to anti-racism. And when Malcolm is assassinated, you know, there's this wide array of, of eulogies, of artistic creation, of organizational innovation. The Black Panthers consider themselves sons of Malcolm. So even the second stage of Black power, though Malcolm wasn't there to see it, Kwame Ray would come after Malcolm. Malcolm is kind of the direct, you know, lightning rod or the prophet that 
allowed black power to come to fruition. Well, Manning Marable put out a book on Malcolm that said he was on his way to becoming just another civil rights type liberal politician. I mean, that's just an absurd claim. I think when you read the last speeches of his life, when he said that, you know, John F. Kennedy was trying to psycho the black masses, when he was still calling civil rights leaders who preach nonviolence Uncle Tom. And even, you know, more militant nonviolent types like James Farmer, he still said that he wanted to intellectually attack those people. And I would like to know which, you know, for people who have this belief, which civil rights leaders, the more moderate types, nonviolent types, were talking about U.S. aggression in Vietnam this early. We're talking about the Congo crisis at all. We're talking about apartheid in South Africa and Portuguese colonialism in Angola and Mozambique, which if you study you know, Malcolm's last speeches in the last, just the last week of his life were constantly at the forefront of his mind. He was still attacking John F. Kennedy when he was kicked out of the nation of Islam for even talking about John F. Kennedy. And he called John F. Kennedy, you know, a, a ploy, a trick, a psychological operation against black people. And I would dare people to look for which civil rights leaders <laughs> they thought would say similar things. I've always felt that Malcolm's greatest gift to Black America was that by his example, he gave us permission to publicly critique our own so-called leaders and therefore laid the groundwork for the tremendous, tumultuous debates of the 60s. Yes, I think the, some of the best language that Malcolm gives us is actually very similar. Talk about these so-called Black leaders. He would say, you know, Black Americans were so-called Americans. He referred to Black Americans in the United States of America, as I said earlier, as Africans in America. You know, he said that you're nothing but Africans, rejecting the notion that Black people are Americans simply because of the fact that they or their ancestors were born in America. And that's a very interesting and important discussion to be had on national identity and who we think that our allegiance is to, is our allegiance to, you know, the United States government, which has for the majority of its existence enslaved, oppressed, and Jim Crowed us. Malcolm would say no. He said that to be an American, you've got to enjoy the fruits of Americanism and that Black people have enjoyed nothing but the thorns and nothing but the thistles. So why is our allegiance there? And then you can extrapolate that to, you know, the so-called Black leadership class or misleadership class. When we talk about the earlier contemporary works of E. Franklin Frazier and Carter Woodson, that he challenged, you know, the, the assumptions that people still have today, I think, that Black Americans are or should be Americans, that our Black leaders, our leaders, whether they're in the CBC, or whether they're in corporatized Black Lives Matter movements, that these are people we should look up to just because they have a place of prominence. Because, and I mentioned the name earlier, Malcolm talked about Carl Rowan, who was skillfully, you know, in his own words, skillfully turning Black people against Africa and the leaders of Africa, such as Lumumba and NASA, who Malcolm looked up to and collaborated with. That was doctoral student Desmond Fonseca, speaking from the University of California at Los Angeles. Lydia McCaskill is studying for both her master's and doctoral degrees at North Carolina Central University and hopes to become a constitutional lawyer. But right now, she's a whirlwind of political activism in her hometown of Gastonia in western North Carolina. McCaskill has launched a Stop Injustice initiative. The Stop Injustice North Carolina initiative is solely based in stopping the 
systemic oppression and the systemic racism that is seen throughout all major institutions. We are not for the oppression of any people. However, black people are first, so we are for black people first, and then the oppression of any people comes second. So that's injustice of any kind. We want to step on it. And when I say step on it, we want to try to eradicate it. We want to expose it. Well, you must have been very busy because I see that you say you've had 400 death threats so far. Yes, I have gotten now a few more than that. Definitely have gotten some um, death threats from some different white militias, different just individuals that are scared. I think that's the correct word to use, scared of the words that I am saying They are scared of the emotion that I am evoking in people. They are afraid of the fact that I can get people to actually do research and not just look at the media to get their information. And they are completely afraid that everything that I say is valid when I talk about corrupt institutions and the systemic oppression and racism that exists within those institutions. Now, you're in Gastonia. Are you saying that white militias are active in that part of North Carolina? White militias are extremely active in this part of North Carolina. I actually had a member of the Proud Boys group. Actually, they contacted me in my social media inbox, and he said he's a leader of a white militia here in Gastonia, North Carolina. And he contacted me um, whenever a lot of racial tension had started surrounded by seemingly surrounded by the fact that I claimed I was discriminated against in an establishment here. That discrimination actually led to an unlawful arrest. So where people who are fighting against injustice were worried about the unlawful arrest, the white militias focused on the fact that I was a black woman that said that I was discriminated against inside of an establishment that is known to be based in racism. That's the Gastonia ice cream shop that later closed. Yes, yes. That is Tony's ice cream. Um, Unfortunately, due to everything that was going on, the Tony's ice cream shop did close for a week after I was unlawfully arrested outside of that. During that time, white militias felt the need to protect Tony's ice cream establishment. In fact, there is in Belmont, North Carolina, the Belmont Papers actually tagged the good old boys and said that they had personally spoke with them and that they were there protecting Tony's. And everything that they said were true. The parking lot was full of neo-Nazis, Confederates, the white militias with their guns. They had helmets. It was absolutely atrocious. Yes, this sounds more like a Jim Crow 1950s and 60s environment than that which the modern movement confronts. Absolutely. And if you would have been present at the time when there were about 300 police officers in the middle of Franklin Boulevard in Gastonia, North Carolina, who were all facing towards a group of all black protesters, it was only about 50 of us, while about 300 white militia were on the other side of the road pointing their guns at us behind the police back. So the police seem to be on the same side as the white militias. So this is something that we as a people 
have to understand. Systemic oppression and systemic racism exists in every single institution. That does not mean uh, you put on a suit and he's not a white supremacist, or you put on a badge and you are not a white supremacist. They are everywhere, and they are placed into each institution in order to perpetuate the oppression of African Americans. So yes, the police are a part of the militias here. The police is its own militia in Gastonia, North Carolina. And what has been your relationship and the relationship of other young activists with the old line civil rights establishment and the preachers in Gastonia? With other activists, I am all about direct action. In my study of the civil rights, how they got things done and how um, they were able to grab people's attention, what they were able to do was they did direct action, they did sit-ins, they did demonstrations, and those brought about something. So in my study of that, I loved that, and I could see where things came about from that. I could see results. So that is how I actually attack the problem. I think that by having a presence somewhere and by uh, practicing your constitutional First Amendment right and speaking and letting your black voice be amplified, then we are able to tell these institutions what is wrong, why they are doing it wrong, and why they need to change. And if you do not change, we will continue protesting, we will continue demonstrating, we will continue the sit-ins, and we will continue every single direct action that we have to. And we understand that this is not a game of checkers and that this is a game of chess, but we are ready and we are prepared for the call for our people to do what we have to do in order to really liberate us. What are the current issues that you're mobilizing around? Right now, I'm on Tuesday, well, on Monday, the Gaston County School Board, I addressed the Gaston County School Board due to some very disturbing rhetoric of a homework assignment that was given to seventh graders in a almost all black school telling seventh graders to act as if you were a slave and please take a video of your experience and what you felt as being traded property. Now, parents were absolutely upset about this. I saw it and I immediately said, I'm going to the school board. I am for the liberation of my people, my children. I fight for my children. You aren't going to infiltrate little black children's mind and give them more trauma than we already have to deal with by making them make a video of what it feels like to be traded property. I don't even think the human brain can wrap around what it feels like to be human property Furthermore, that was a completely disrespectful to my ancestors. So I did address that, in which the school board said that they did not approve of that. They would take it out of their curriculum, and they actually told me, anything else, any other problems come to us. So that was on Monday. On Tuesday, I addressed the city council. Mayor Walker Reed, an African-American mayor here in Gastonia, has failed to say anything regarding racial tensions since the death of George Floyd. I addressed the city council and the mayor on Tuesday, and I requested that they make racism a public health issue. And I am right now in Gastonia, North Carolina, and I gave them certainly a lot of evidence to show why it is a public health issue. And I am currently right now creating a resolution so that the city council can vote on that, in which once the city council and the mayor signs off on it, I plan on taking it to the county commissioner. And once the county commissioner sign off on it, then maybe we can get this racist statue down that Tracy Fieldback refuses to take down.
We know that some organizations in your region are calling for community control of the police. What's your position on that? We want to abolish the police institution. Since 1965, when mass incarceration began, when there was an influx of black prisoners, and that was due to the fact, oh, well, we're going to give them the Civil Rights Act, but then we are going to control them more. So since 65, when the police have been beating on black people, there's been this thing called police reform. Now, if we have been practicing and going through and spending billions and billions of dollars on police reform, and the police continue to not only perpetuate us into mass incarceration, but they continue to kill us unarmed, they continue to harass us, we don't want the system. Abolish the system. It does not work. I am for the abolishment of the police institutions. I am a sociologist and criminologist first. I look at research. I can see what Camden, New Jersey has done in abolishing their police institution. And I can see how communal officers have helped. There are negatives in that model, absolutely. But I can see how it actually is working in Camden, New Jersey. And as a sociologist, I go and research. And we need to abolish every single police institution in America, KKK, because they are perpetuating black people into the system so that they can further oppress us. But you say the black mayor in Gastonia has been mute since the George Floyd protests erupted. Yeah, and that, and that was really, that's, that's really unfortunate. And um, I was not aware of this until after the incident happened with me in July. And so the mayor actually took to social media and made some very rude comments about me and the situation that happened at Tony's and being unlawfully arrested. And so that just made a lot of people upset. So we planned a protest at his house at 3 a.m. in the morning. We went to his house, we protested. He called the police on us. The police came ready to arrest us, but unfortunately I am smarter than the fifth grader. And we had our protesting rights and we had our gasoline noise ordinances pulled up. So there was nothing that they could do. So we stayed there and after that the mayor still failed to reach out to any organization to make any comment about the racial injustice. And he also failed to just say anything, to just say anything regarding us. Now, what he did not do was he did go on an interview. He did make an interview. And in that interview, what Mayor Walker Reed of Gastonia, North Carolina said, and I quote, I stay in my lane, end quote. Now, as a black woman, I, I took that a little personal because when you say you stay in your lane as a black man and you know that there are white militias with weapons running through your streets and terrorizing black citizens and threatening them. When you say that you stay in your lane, are you not pro-black? What are you? So, no, the mayor has done absolutely nothing, which is why I had to go to the city council meeting. I tried to email him. I tried to, you know, protest at his house. None of those things worked. So I had to go to the city council, and I had to let not only the city council, but as well as the citizens of Gastonia know that what Mayor Walter Reed is doing is not only incompetent, but it is dangerous to the black citizens of Gastonia, North Carolina. And it is comparable to what our top government official is doing right now by failing to denounce white supremacy.
When Mayor Reed says he stays in his lane, it sounds like he means he stays in his place. That is exactly what that sounds like. Now, there is a lot of logistics that comes with this. Um, we also have Tracy Philback, which is the county commissioner, who took to Facebook and told Facebook that I was a paid protesting thug sent to Gastonia to destroy Gastonia, as if I'm not a native of Gastonia. There's also Chad Brown, who sits on the county commissioner, who took to Facebook and compared a 30-day contempt charge that I received to a young lady, a white lady, Caitlin Abernathy, who was charged with killing, murdering two black people and only sentenced to 16 months. This same Chad Brown has also said that systemic racism is not real. So this is a system thing here. It is not just a mayor. The mayor has to stay in his place because he has someone controlling him. It's all about money. This is, I realize this is politics. However, my question is, when does your race and the advancement of your people come before that? When are you going to put that before whatever you have in your political, whatever you have politically going on? As a black man, when are you going to put the advancement of your race first? You had planned to be a constitutional civil rights attorney. Is that still your ambition? That is still my ambition. Um, I'm currently at North Carolina Central University. I am going for my master's as well as my Juris Doctorate. Not only is that my ambition, I will actually go the extra year. So one day if I decide to also become a judge, that I can also do that. Because I understand we have to get more people of color in positions of power. And once we are able to do that and we see how these systems work, then we can better expose these systems, not only expose them, but also give them resolve. How can we fix the discrepancies in the system that are geared towards the oppression of African-Americans. The government knows how they can do that. The government is the one that made the system up. But see, what they want us to do is since they made that system up and we now have generations and generations of oppression, they want us to have to call it out so they can fix it. So I'll be the one. I'll go get a Juris Doctorate. I will become a constitutional lawyer. I will represent people whose civil rights have been taken advantage of, and I will get in their pockets, I will get in their minds, and we will dismantle every single corrupt institution that there is. And I think I know that we can do that. We just have to have enough people that are willing to say, you know what, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm going to speak out. I don't care if they threaten me, threaten my family. I understand that in order for anything to be better for my people, I may have to put myself on the line. I may have to give myself up and say, I will be the one that speaks up. And I'm currently right now in Gastonia, unfortunately, but fortunately, I am that one and I don't mind. And I tell people, I fear God and God alone. I don't, a KKK in a suit or in a cape will not scare me. In my studies of systemic oppression and racism, what I found is in order to combat that systemic oppression in Germany, what they actually did was a process called denazification. Now, the denazification process is where they went in, they fired any Nazi, they, re they removed any type of Nazi sentiment from the public. They did not glorify 
anything that the Nazis did because, I mean, the Nazis were horrible people and, and it was they, they caused death to people. So in my studies, I began looking for a word like, okay, so there has to be a word like deconfederification or de-white supremification. Well, I put it in Google and unfortunately I did not find any results. And that completely baffled me because if we have a denazification process in America, what we need is a de-white supremification process. And I deem that as when we remove every sentiment of white supremacy that there is in America KKK because those sentiments are harmful to black culture and they are simply racist. So by the white supremacizing America, we are actually taking out that racism part. We're, we're, we're removing it. So that way, if we can actually do that, then we can remove that racism from the institutions as well. So in my studies, and, and if I was going to go get a higher education in sociology, this would be what I would write about. But the de-white supremification process is going to be very important to America KKK in the next five, ten years. We are going to have to remove any, every, and all things that represent or that signify any type of white supremacy. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.